Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for a special wedding edition of the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. I say so because when this episode releases, two days ago, I will have been married. Is that the proper use of a tense? I'm pre-recording this before the day, but you're hearing it after the day. I'm not quite sure, but we're going to be talking about a time machine method. And the guest is Stacy Dyer. And she wrote a really cool book called The Universe's Most Kick-Ass Wedding Planning Workbook. And that's sort of her thing, is that she is providing means and approaches of using best practices in terms of thinking and ideation and software collaboration type models to planning anything. So you're going to learn a lot of cool things, including one, how to avoid future mishaps with a time machine methodology. Kind of feels like I was in a time machine earlier with all those tenses. Two, a five-card hand that you should have in your back pocket to spark great ideas and solutions. And three, best practices for self-motivation. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to things mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep92. And we're running a honeymoon special right now until the end of 2016. If you think there's even a chance that you and your team would like to enjoy my flagship training program, the Enhanced Thinking and Collaboration Program, and you shoot me an email about it, you inquire on the website under training programs within this year, we're going to knock $1,000 off when that finally unfolds somewhere in 2017. So that's the special we got running, as well as all kinds of other cool free resources over there at awesomeatyourjob.com. So it might be fun to meet you and your team in person in upcoming 2017. But for now, let's hear about Stacy. Stacy Dyer is currently a corporate director of customer experience design. Stacy is grateful for the mentor she's had in her career and thus strives to provide guidance and insight that reflects professional care and expertise. Outside of work, Stacy can be found in vocal sessions within the down tempo, jazz, and EDM space, in addition to running and practicing yoga or writing blog posts at stacysdiylife.com and books, astro-wed.com. Prior to her current role, Stacy's previous experiences run the gamut of in-house to agency side, working with a diverse array of clients from liquor and cigars to healthcare and youth nonprofits. Here's Stacy. Stacy, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Pete. I'm really excited to be here with you. Oh, me too. I'm so glad that Mandy introduced us. And that was a fun introductory email. She referred to you as a multipotentiality. <laughs> this does not surprise me. <laughs> I think that's a really good thing, but I don't hear the word enough to be positive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, I've been enjoying your book, The Universe's Most Kick-Ass Wedding Planning Workbook, as I am doing some wedding planning myself. It's a couple weeks away. It may have already happened by the time this airs, actually, but it's been pretty handy for me, and I really appreciate you. must have taken you a long time to make all the graphical cool things that are up in there. It was an incredibly fun process to work on the illustration side of that book, for sure. 
Excellent. And, and so tell me, how did you find the inspiration that this is something that needs to exist in the world? Because there's really nothing like it. <laughs> I mean, what's the backstory there? I totally appreciate you saying that as well. That's always what you hope when you create something, right? Like, oh, maybe it'll be the first thing or the only one of its kind. Yeah. So let's see. So how did this thing all start? So I've been writing the same memoir for the last five or six years. And I got to this point where I realized I needed to trick myself into writing every week. So my husband's a full-time DJ and has a residency out on Block Island off the coast of Rhode Island. And so I would have every Monday night to myself. And I was like, okay, this is writing night. And I just said, as long as I'm writing something every week, I'm doing my job. I'm doing what I need to do in order to get into this habit of sort of like a Pavlovian mental trick. And so we were in the process of getting married. We had gone through the process of getting married. And then most of the time I ended up writing about my experiences from planning it, from designing some DIY stuff, the trials, the tribulations, the stress of all of it, the surprising awfulness that is the industry pressure, you name it. So through that process, I ended up building my own blog and submitting a bunch of posts to a wonderful organization called offbeatbride.com. And Offbeat shows a post called How to Shop for Your Wedding Dress Like a Software Engineer. And when that post went up, the most surprising piece was not just the software people, but the non-software people. I had one woman write in into the comments that said, I saw this post. I thought it was going to be boring as hell. And then I read this. I'm totally going shopping in this way tomorrow. So there was clearly a tipping point between planning, organizational forethought, and really being able to be prepared enough to go into this thing that's supposed to be very important, the most important outfit of your entire life. Oh my God, how do I even start? So that was really the tipping point where I said, I feel like I'm onto something here, but it can't be as dry and sciency as what Agile or Lean UX or just the scientific method is. Because wedding industry stuff, as you know, is very foo-foo shishi or it's cheeky and cute and sweet. And I needed to find that middle ground. So that's really where it all started. Oh, I see. Interesting. Well, but what I really think is so cool is how you've applied, you know, one method of thinking to a task, something in front of you to great result. And it reminds me of how management consultants worked their weddings. And I'd say every one of them had this elaborate Excel model, which you looked into the probability of each guest saying yes and the incremental cost associated <laughs> with each guest. And, and so I'm, I did the same thing myself. <laughs> but it's cool because it's sure enough, it just helps you get that result in a positive way. So I'd love to hear maybe just to get the appetite going for some of your wisdom. Could you share a story of how folks, whether it's with that blog post or other folks that you've taught with your keynotes, workshops and such, how they've applied some of your thought processes to fantastic results. Sure. You know, from a day job perspective, I've worked with lots of different design teams, software design teams, development teams, design thinking teams, you name it, all across the board. And I'd say one of the most successful pieces that's inside AstroWed is the time machine methodology. The time machine is really a rebranding of pre-mortem. I felt like post-mortem, pre-mortem, mortem, death. Death. <laughs> death plus wedding equals bad. So we needed to change that in a more positive light. But the point of it is to say, get in your time machine and imagine you've built this thing. It has failed. 
list out as many reasons as possible, and then try and figure out how to mitigate your risk at the end of the day. Telling a bunch of couples to be to mitigate their risk is probably not the best idea. (laughs) It's not really, you know, a catchy tagline that people are getting really jazzed about. So in doing this time machine methodology, I still use it to this day. Premortems are the cause and effect for me a lot around structured ideation. Sometimes we use those premortems in order to design a moderator guide for customer interviews and say, like, we don't know what to ask them. How do we even begin? Well, let's start by actually guessing where their pain points are or this thing, this idea that we have, it's totally going to flop. List all those reasons and then ask them if that would be true. And then on the flip side, even if you're designing anything, if you're not in software, if you're just designing a spreadsheet, a worksheet, you're making your to-do list, your packing list for travel, for your honeymoon even, Pete, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you can do that same pre-mortem methodology and say, I've packed all of my things in my suitcase, but I've failed. What things have you forgotten? (laughs) And it should be a really quick way to be like, oh, the thing that would kill me the most is if I forgot my sunglasses or my contact lenses or, you know, anything of that effect. And I like that so much because it really does spark a different set of ideas as opposed to just the prompt, what do I need to bring? Right. Because, you know, thinking when you get there is a different set of brain actions than thinking I am there and it's gone badly. Mm -hmm. I did live demos at the Boston LGBT wedding expo that we were just at on November 6th. And I walked people through, I gave them a live demo of like a trimmed down version of the worksheets. And when I got to the time machine, I always start with the bad one. And I say, okay, you got to your wedding day. Your photographer is there. It has totally failed. The photos look terrible. Why? And the grimaces on these couples' faces is amazing. And I point to them and I say, that's it. That's it right there. You don't want to have that face on your actual wedding day. Flip it around. What are you going to do to make sure that it doesn't happen? What conversation, what thing can you bring up to this vendor and say, I really don't want my pictures to look like they're from Instagram. Say that. (laughs) Great. And what are some other things in that example, sticking with it for a second, what are some other things that bubble up? Oh, one that came to mind for one couple was one partner looked at the other and she was like, you're always late. You better be on time. (laughs) Certainly. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's good. That's good. And I guess I'm just thinking about doing thorough due diligence associated with seeing how the photographer's natural style is before you even select it. But depending on where you are in the timeline, <laughs> if, exactly. if you have that luxury. So, okay, so that's great. And then on the flip side, you think, well, what would be sort of a fantastic, wild, delightful success? Right. And imagine what sparks come to mind there. Actually, you're helping me real time. <laughs> what are some of those things that pop up? So for us, I don't know about you guys, but when my husband takes a photo of me, I freeze. Like I have that, like I'm in second grade. I have to take this photo. Please get me out of this outfit look on my face. Um, <laughs> but usually when strangers are taking photos of me, if they can get the candid shots, then they're fantastic. So in my mind, okay, I've gotten to my wedding day. I'm looking at my photos after the fact. They're amazing because They've been able to capture me at my best moments and my most natural smile, which always happens to be a candid moment. So I need them to be sneaky and run around and hide behind things and catch me (laughs) right in that split second. 
it was just a huge help to have that conversation with our photographer at that point and say, you know, this is my biggest challenge. And it would be really great if you could make me not look like an awkward second grader. <laughs> oh, that sparks a clear vision too. Thank you. <laughs> so the time machine, that was one of my favorite tactics or tools from your book. So thank you for highlighting that. One of the others I really liked was the well, I always say it like a parrot because you have an icon of a parrot. Yes, look, that's right. You know, macaw. You know, and exactly. M a c a w for must, could, won't. Can you talk to us a little bit about that tool? Absolutely. So this was another one that came from you know software design over the years and really making that list. It stems from Moscow. Moscow is must, should, could, won't. Oh, so the should never worked out for me. It was always this awkward bucket of, well, it should do this. Well, if it should do that, then put it in the must. Do you know what I mean? I hear you, yeah. Yeah. So by dropping the should, now we've got to focus. My lucky number is three. So three buckets of things are super important. But when it comes to planning a wedding, it's the most complicated event you're probably ever going to plan for in your life. And at every stage of the planning process for us, it was almost like, like I didn't spend 20 years of my life, including part of my childhood, planning my wedding. I was never going to get married. This was not a thing that was on the top of my mind. I didn't have a Pinterest board that I'd been saving for 10 years. Like None of that was a thing. So I was very lost once I got to this process. And often the only way that I could get started was by creating a list of won'ts. Well, I know it won't be an indoor wedding in a gaudy hotel with low ceilings and bad lighting. <laughs> All right. I know that I don't want a cake. So whatever their desserts are, they better have chocolate and fruity things. I know that I don't want my dress to be some crazy Cinderella ball gown. I know I don't want to overheat. I know I don't want to wear heels that are too high, you know, things like that. So that it would inform decisions in a different way. But I tell my couples when I'm coaching them, start with what you do know. And sometimes what you do know is the negative side of things. And that's okay because our brain is three times as sticky to the negative things than we are to the positive. So sometimes it's a great scapegoat in terms of a thought experiment. Mm, that is solid. Yes. So those are two great tools right there. We got the time machine and the macaw, which I agree. I think sometimes people want to make their acronym the way they want to make it. So I agree the should isn't all that helpful in determining those things. So, oh, I'd love to hear while we're on the roll, are there any other tools that show up in terms of your, you know, design thinking or software toolkit that have broad applicability for professionals kind of working through all kinds of questions? Absolutely. I've got a short list for you. So one of the most common ways, so I do a lot of structured ideation. A lot of people hear the word brainstorm. There's been all kinds of articles. I'm sure you've been seeing this lately, Pete, about like how brainstorming is broken. Brainstorming is dead. It really doesn't work. People spend way too much time writing things on sticky notes. Da, 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 da. A lot of the times brainstorming goes bad because it's unstructured. So I like to have a short list of almost like cards in my back pocket. What's the best five card hand I can make for this ideation session. And often the way that I start is through the stereotype game or the assumptions game. We're moving through a process right now where we're looking at a targeted market segment and we're saying like, we think we know who these people are. All right, well, let's line up all of the things that we think we know about them. We are assuming that they do X, Y, and Z. And from that, then you can stare at those and, you know, you do your divergent thinking 
and then converge those into themes, into questions. And again, they often help you create features or they'll help you create questions that you want to ask customers in real time. Another one that I love to use is Made to Sticks Success Framework. Okay. With the Chip Heath book stuff? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So simple, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional stories. I mean, the whole point of it is to be able to create the best, pithiest elevator pitch you could possibly make and make it super impactful and make it memorable at the end of the day. I've used this in mentoring sessions. I had the pleasure of working with a nonprofit called Real Industry, and we use this as a way to get PhD students to create their elevator pitch that they had to share with us as a panel of 10 judges like we were on American Idol. It's fantastic. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's cool. If you Google, if you go into images and you Google made to stick success framework, there are tons of versions of the list of what each of those things mean. So for folks that are looking for like, great, but what does each part actually translate to? There's a lot on the web that can help you decipher that. And so I want to make sure I've collected what you had to say there associated with the five card hand. So are each of those cards prompts to structure the ideation? What are those five? So we've got pre-mortems, macaw, the success framework, the assumptions game. And then I've also got two others, WWXD and also the Upworthy 25. For me, these cards are really things that I pull out in the event that usually there's a goal that people go through. Like, oh, we need to come up with a solution. We need to come up with a way to brainstorm new ideas about this other thing. Or this is a big problem. How do we solve it? And I've always got sort of like a short list in my back pocket, like a toolkit, as you had said, ready to go and help that team make their ideas come to life. On the WWXD front, this is like a idea fire starter. It stands for what would X do? I just ran an ideation workshop a couple of weeks ago where a data strategy group had four topics that they needed to tackle. And they were massive, massive things. And it was really important to the group's leader that they break out of their shells and think in a different way. So all the teams worked on the same idea, but they each started with an X, like SpongeBob, Wonder Woman, Winston Churchill. (laughs) And they had to ideate and come up with as many ideas as possible on those sticky notes for five minutes in the mindset of what would Winston Churchill do for this topic? Oh, I see. Right. So what would SpongeBob do for this data need? How would Wonder Woman help define data queries in a different light? Oh, wow. That's interesting. Could I hear one example of a SpongeBob or Winston Churchill or Wonder Woman inspiration? (laughs) One person wrote, make Patrick do it. Um, Another person wrote, find a way to get a Gary. (laughs) So if they could find a way to create a sidekick that equaled, you know, a meowing snail, it would have helped solve the problem. (laughs) And that in turn could then sort of spark some you know, workable ideas associated with, they have, you know, resources they can call upon to assist them, like live human beings. Exactly. And really what it was, was it was a method to help them break out of their shells. So there was another one that was around Roger Federer. So the whole team had written their hypothesis and all of their ideas around tennis metaphors, but it worked beautifully. It was all about creating a new court, having a practice area, where was the locker room in which they could store certain things? Like it all translated beautifully. It was really, really impressive. And the team had a lot more fun and took it less seriously. 
some of the feedback I got after that workshop was, you know, we've almost been threatened to come up with really good ideas, but you really made it fun and more lighthearted because we had to become these really silly things, these really silly personas. Oh, that's so great. And as I think about one of my favorite books about creativity, A Whack on the Side of the Head, that's kind of a recurring theme is that, you know, our seriousness, we need to find the right answer. We need to find it now. It needs to be in our area of expertise. Like that kind of attitude really kind of puts a lot of pressure that which is not helpful for the brain to just kind of play and go to new places. Right. And oftentimes you hear the term, the curse of knowledge. Sometimes it's when you're trying to explain something to someone else, Pete's an expert in podcasting. You know, you're going to talk about it in a way that some folks might get really lost because they're not experts. So you have to take into account, even when you're doing ideation sessions, what your own curse of knowledge is and when it barricades you from actually seeing the real possibilities. You know, I was just chatting with someone about this recently, you know, that notion that, you know, if you're very advanced in an area and you're talking to someone who's less advanced, you might be skipping a couple of layers kind of in the middle and just sort of be whoosh, like right over their heads. Do you have any kind of perspectives or pro tips on how you engage with folks who are on a different level than you are with your expertise. Because indeed it is kind of like a curse. Like you can't unknow what you know, but nonetheless, (laughs) you got to make a connection and a bridge for somebody. Any thoughts on how that can work well? Yeah, absolutely. The biggest pro tip is to be empathetic. If you can truly put yourself in their shoes, it's all about understanding your audience. It's not about coming down to their level. It's not that at all. It's how can I share my insight and knowledge with this person in a way that they're going to take something away from it? What's my goal here in telling this story? If your goal is to make yourself feel smart, well, then you know what you need to do. (laughs) (laughs) But if your goal is to help them, to give them a piece of knowledge that they can take back and use in their life, in their work, whatever the case may be, you know, put yourselves in their shoes, understand who they are as an audience member, as an audience and say, okay, so they're not a mathematician. We're talking about data. How do I make it approachable and use an analog? Oh my God. Analogies for days. That's my number one best pro tip for anyone. If you can use an analogy to help people understand and visualize or relate to what you're talking about, they'll remember it so, so easily because then it'll seem so simple. It'll seem less scary. It'll seem less overwhelming. Oh, that's great. And do you have an example of an analogy that recently made a world of difference in terms of bringing clarity and insight to a matter? I did a customer interview on the topic of insurance. And one of the questions I asked was, how would you explain insurance to my six-year-old nephew? And I had one person say, it's a safety net in case you lose your pet toy and you can easily be able to buy and replace that one. We're always here protecting your toys. All right. I thought that was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Very cool. Well, thank you. And just to make sure we cover our our bases, did we hear the Upworthy? Was that the last card in the five card? Yes. So the Upworthy 25. So Upworthy is a fantastic website. Lots and lots of great news items coming through there every day. Their team has a rule of thumb that for every headline that goes up on the web, 25 has to get written before they pick one or two if they're A-B testing. And I'm trying to remember where I read this. It may have been in Made to Stick, where they review sort of what the brain goes through in terms of its creative process. And that by making 
it through a full 25, you'll have gone from start to finish of 100% creative process because you'll get to your breaking point, right? You'll have like your first five ideas really, really fast. And then you'll see something that's sticky and you're like, okay, that's good. That's good. Let's go down that path. Okay. Okay. And then it begins to get hard. You get to 12 and you kind of run out of steam. You might go walk away, get a cup of coffee, but by stepping away, you've got more ideas and you sit back down and you crank it out again. You have the opportunity now to see how many things you've written and say, oh, I like that one and that one. What if I were to, oh, here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. By creating that 25, you've allowed your brain all of the space and time and at the same time, generated your best work. And now you've got a selection to pick from. And especially if you're in the world of analytical testing, A-B testing, to try and see which one would resonate most with your audience, you've got plenty to work with. Oh, fantastic. And that reminds me of, wow, way back in episode eight, we talked to Esteban Gast about creativity. And that was a key message is that it's very predictable in that some things come easily and then there's a dip and you've just got to push past it. So maybe it's taking a break and returning. But the wisdom from Upworthy is that by the time you land on 25 things, you can feel pretty good that you've kind of covered your bases and successfully pushed past the dip. Definitely. You've exhausted a good batch of different themes, different concepts. And usually by the end of that 25, there's probably three to five that are sticking out like sore thumbs at you saying, pick me, pick me. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, so now I'm wondering, so you got some great tools once you've sort of sat down and begun sort of doing the thinking and structured ideation. I guess I'd like to hear just from your own kind of self-management, like what are some best practices associated with, you know, getting in the groove so that, you know, things are sparking off the top of your head in the first place? First thing is self-awareness. By the time you're 30, you're kind of who you are. You're either a morning person, you're an afternoon person, you're an evening person, you're a, you know, 11:30 to 4 a.m. person. Really embrace who you are and when you've noticed your own patterns. I'm most productive first thing in the morning. So, if I need to actually get a bunch of stuff done, I like as much sunlight as possible. I like to have a good cup of coffee in my hand. I like to scratch my itch of checking some emails and then the headphones go on, the music comes on, and we're in the zone. Also, I've gotten to a point where I recognize my rhythm, that it's very important for me to step away. It's almost more important that I get distracted about an hour, hour and a half in, because I know I'm going to get restless because I don't like to sit for very long. And I also know that some of my best ideas come to me as pure epiphanies just because I went to go check on a load of laundry. Okay. So if you can sort of be your own science experiment and notice, even if you've just got like a spare post-it note pad, when are you most productive during the day? When do your best ideas come to you? And what makes you happiest when you're having those idea moments? Nobody likes being tortured. Nobody likes being in the place that they feel like makes them feel like they're in a dungeon. So whatever you can do to create those environments, those are the most important things. Because if you can create that environment anywhere you go, even if it's only two or three of those top five things, you'll find solace and comfort and be able to push through the need to get something done or the want to create purely. Mm -hmm. Yes, I like that a lot. And I've been noticing that more and more. And like there's real legit science associated with people's individual differing times of the day in which they're operating and just like your hormones and 
neurotransmitters and waxing and waning. And we had Dr. Michael Bruce talking about chronotypes back in episode 63. And it's wild if you really pay attention. It makes a world of difference. Doing something at 10 a.m. is very different than doing something at 4 p.m. just based on how you're wired. Right, right. 100%. There's a great book called Upward Spiral that's all about defeating depression. But there are so many incredible insights just about how the mind works and how you can sort of meet it in the middle when you're having trouble trying to get started or you're procrastinating. There's been also a ton of research lately coming out about procrastination. Have you read the book Originals yet? Oh, no, but it keeps showing up, so I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, um, I'm in the middle of it right now. And I mean, the Originals is probably the best book I've read all year. There are so many incredible insights. I understand myself so much more. <laughs> As a person who is multifaceted and has her hands dipped in all kinds of different pots. But one of the things that it speaks to is there's incredible scientific evidence about procrastinators. And Martin Luther King was one of them that his incredibly famous, I have a dream speech, he didn't write until the night before. And he talked to experts, leaders, community people all the way along. He was doing early design thinking long before it was ever a branded framework. And then he sat down and said, okay, I guess I should get started. And he improvised when he got onto the podium and he trusted himself. So there's a ton of great stuff in that book about procrastination and embracing what happens to you. And again, be your own science experiment. You know, if you're a train wreck when you procrastinate, maybe that's not for you. Uh (laughs) But I have one of the best designers I ever had the pleasure of working with. She's a design director in Connecticut now. She always needed to light a fire under her own ass by putting herself in a time box or only giving herself like an hour to get something done before submitting it for review because she knew she would come up with her best ideas in the fight or flight sort of sense. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you. And so I'd also like to get a sense for, you know, let's say I'm thinking about the listeners who already have tons of great ideas. Like that's not the problem is having them. I got them by the bushel, but often organizations or teams or individual decision makers, you know, may not have the appetite for risk or innovation or exploration. Do you have any perspective on how ideas really get sort of approval, traction, interest and how we can be a bit more persuasive in improving the odds that they can come to life? Certainly. That's such a great question. There's a couple of different methods. It depends on the type of organization or even how disruptive your idea is. So large organizations, you need to get lots and lots of early on the ground, almost like what you would expect Washington is like to get early buy-in just by including people and talking to them and saying, you know, I've been thinking about this. Tell me your thoughts and really actively listening. But also by sharing that, you're starting to include people and people like to be included in the new hotness because new stuff is hard. So on one hand, you have the balancing challenge of managing those around you that can either support or thwart the success of the idea or the execution of that idea. And then on the other hand, you have just the fact that new stuff is hard for people. New is change. Change is hard. Some of us embrace it and love it, like myself, and other people have a really difficult time. So you have to be empathetic to that and think, what would those folks appreciate 
um, when I'm trying to make this huge organizational shift or I'm just trying to introduce like a new worksheet. <laughs> it can be small. You'd be surprised how people react to those changes. So I say one is consensus-driven discussions. They may not feel like that. You don't have to get everybody into a room and say, do we agree that this is a good idea? You don't need to do that. But having small one-on-one conversations so that you've got almost like a coalition by the time you get to the place of presenting that idea, because then you've got people talking. There's some buzz. People are getting used to that idea. Oh, four weeks ago, you talked to them. It's been rolling around in their brain. You might receive an email from somebody. Hey, I was thinking about that idea we were talking about over coffee the other day. I really like it because of this, that, and that, and it affects me in this way. And that's really exciting. So give people some time and space also. On the flip side, when you've got a really disruptive idea, a large part is just making sure you keep talking to people. Customer interviews of any kind are so, so important and really acknowledging the landscape that you're in. I've got a great story that actually happened the other night. A pair of friends are in the process of looking to buy a restaurant that's pre-existing. And while they're working on bank loans and figuring out finances, they really got excited about doing a GoFundMe campaign. Now, I didn't do any research. You know, we've been working together on business plans and just making sure that they're doing their checks and balances from that business standpoint. But I sent over an email last night to one of the potential owners and said, do your due diligence in terms of competitive landscape inside of GoFundMe because they put it up and they were like, why isn't it working? We're not getting any donations. Like what's happening? Don't jump to conclusions too soon. Check what's happening around you. Are there other restaurants on GoFundMe? If there are, are they doing well or are they doing poorly? What are you doing that is going well? What are you doing that's not going well? How do those two things match up? Is there a lot that's on there or are there only two restaurants and their campaigns are kind of meh and they're not sticking? Maybe that's a result of GoFundMe not being the right avenue for this type of service. Because at the end of the day, you have to also embrace your idea will sit in a certain category, but certain categories might not sit well in certain avenues. Services, as I'm sure you know, Pete, are hard because they're abstract. They're not a tangible product at the end. So really trying to translate what that means for people. How do you get somebody to donate to a thing that's really just this business idea? So one of the things we talked about was translating it to like, as a customer, I want to know, will you have enough tables for me? Will you have enough tables for me and my friends? How many coffee mugs do you have? How many potential coffee cups or cups of coffee could I have at your place? Things like that, that will get people excited again, that they can relate to. Mm -hmm. Understood. And so it's interesting. I think within that notion about there's not always a great fit there is fantastic because I think there's often sort of a knee-jerk reaction to GoFundMe is cool. Instagram is cool. You know, like there's something that's new and hot and fresh and great and we all need to be up on it. But at the same time, I think truly, you know, some things don't quite fit that well. And like, I don't know, for instance, who needs to be a fan of Tide on Facebook and stay up to date with the latest, you know, laundry detergent news. Right. <laughs> right. Like I know moms are on Facebook, but do they really care that much about their laundry detergent brand being on Facebook? Maybe if they're doing giveaways. So again, it's like drilling down into the, why do you need to be here? What is the advantage or the benefit to your customer? And speaking to that disruptor side of things, I'm constantly dealing with this as an experiment today with AstroWed because like you said at the top, there's nothing like that 
out there. I've also just launched a set of coaching services. So instead of being a traditional wedding planner, I've seen more and more, and I was one of those couples as well, that I really just needed to get kickstarted or I needed some advice around a particular area. A lot of couples now just need day of coordination. They need somebody to come in, set up the stuff, break it down and make sure that people get from point A to point B. So I'm trying to spin up a new set of offerings, a new set of services that completely break down the norm of multi-thousand dollar wedding planning prices and offer an inexpensive, approachable option that feels like something you would get from a business aspect. Oh, sure thing. And what I find really interesting, you know, to that point in terms of getting the event kind of up and going is I'm a big fan of, well, Time Etc. is the company. You can have sort of part-time assistance helping you with stuff. So you just get a package. And so I've had my assistant, Marty, doing a great job. Thank you, Marty. Uh, <laughs> to do just a lot of the legwork associated with, okay, hey, we've got to find an apartment where we're moving into. Okay, got to find the venue, got to find the rehearsal dinner spot. Then it's just a matter of, you know, there are dozens or hundreds of options. I need you to just kind of chug through them and see, you know, right. who meets our basic criteria in terms of, you know, the price is within this range. They have availability on this date for this many people, you know, go. And so often, like that can take a good six plus hours on the phone, <laughs> you know, going from place to place to place. And it's been fantastic. So I hear you in terms of the real pain points. There are many ways to alleviate them, probably outside the traditional milieu of I am the wedding planner. Right. That's fun. So I also want to make sure we cover you have a cool workshop associated with using $50 to do a whole lot of good, I guess, learning, testing, validation of an idea. And I thought that sounds like a heck of a bargain. You know, what's some <laughs> of the, the secret magic within that? Sure. So that workshop really spawned from me doing a bunch of targeted Facebook ad tests for 50 bucks a pop to learn what is the stickiest persona for AstroWed. So I had honed down from doing one of those assumption exercises and said, okay, we got comic book people. We've got regional people like in the Boston area. We've got techie people. And then, and then we've got LGBT. And I wanted to see who of that group was the stickiest, who was engaging the most and what could I learn for the smallest amount of money possible? (laughs) So that test was great because even though the numbers of hits were fairly small, at least you got a signal in terms of, you know, being in a HubSpot sort of culture where content marketing is king. How do you know who to really write for or who to create content for? And that was a really large impetus of running this test. And the comic book people actually won and LGBT was second. So it was really, really interesting, but it helped inform the next set of marketing initiatives and business steps and was one of the reasons why we moved towards doing Boston's LGBT Wedding Expo a few weekends ago. It was smaller. It allowed us to test a bunch of other things as well. And if you haven't learned yet, basically one of my mantras is everything is an experiment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The more you can learn, the more you can refine, the more you can constantly move with your customer as well as you can move with the landscape. Well, could you give us just a very rough sense for... Okay, 50 bucks, you're getting some kind of a signal. You know, I guess that equates to, you know, so many thousand impressions and so many clicks. It's probably not statistically significant to the 95% core of confidence interval, whatever, but it's something. Can you give us a sense for, 
did you see, oh, wow, this group was clicking at, you know, six times the rate as the other group? Or how does that unfold? Yeah, it was essentially that. It was like the comic book folks were clicking at, I think it was five times the rate of the regional group was the least performing. Nobody cared. They were like, whatever, you're from Boston. We know, go away. (laughs) And what was really interesting was that the male demographic engaged more than the female from the comic book standpoint, which was super exciting to me because again, I'm disrupting a wedding market where it is bride only all the time. And being really curious about those demographics, I was just thrilled to see that kind of multiplier. And then on the other side, what you end up learning, especially from targeted Facebook ads, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday were definitely the best days by far. I had run these like week after week and just seeing the trends of when people were online was also hugely helpful to just be able to schedule all of your social media to hit people when they want to be hit. Oh, that is fascinating. And so you don't have to share this. You may not remember this, but can you give me a sense for, it sounds like such a great deal, 50 bucks, give me some real knowledge. So could you give us a sense for, you know, hey, number of impressions and clicks bad, roughly, and number of impressions clicks good, roughly? I don't remember it off the top of my head. I have to pull it up. But I will tell you, one of the other things that we talked about during that workshop was other things that you could do with 50 bucks that will actually make a difference to tell you whether or not your idea is good or bad. We talked about gas money being spent to drive and talk to people. Two lunches, take a couple of people out to lunch. It's worth paying for that conversation because any insight you can gather that's not your own is worth its weight in gold. And then also I had one person comment, 50 bucks in beer or wine goes a long way when it comes to getting favors in return for things that you may not have the ability to do. I'm a graphic designer in addition to being a framework obsessed junkie. So I often trade dinner for doing design favors for a lot of friends and colleagues because I'm like, don't bother paying me. Like, I'm happy to do this just to help you. So remember, folks, like, it's not necessarily the dollar. It's what you can do to barter that means something to your friends. I love to see people and have those conversations. So let's go out to dinner. If you pick up the tab, this one's on me. (laughs) Oh, beautiful. Very cool. Well, is there anything else you want to make sure that we cover off before we shift gears and hear some of your favorite things here? I think the last thing I'll say is that I know you're probably going to circle around on this at the end, but we've got a free webinar this Thursday to talk about how to design your own wedding budget. And it's based on you, not just industry trends. So the Q3 2016 results for the wedding industry just came out this week. So we're going to be reviewing that and I'm going to be recording that. So I hope to post that on YouTube. So perhaps by the time this episode goes live, you'll be able to find that on YouTube. And then we've got a number of other webinars and workshops coming up as well. So just head to astro-wed.com and go to events and you'll be able to see what's coming up. All right. Good deal. So with that said, could you start us off by sharing a favorite quote, something you find helpful? One of my favorites, James... Ulcher is a fantastic writer. He's on Medium. He's out in the market talking about all kinds of things from quitting your job to talking with like Stephen Dubner. He once said in one of his articles, just take the truth and wrap it in art. Mm, Thank you. I love that. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research? Blue Mind is a fantastic book on why we are drawn to water, to the color blue, to stillness, to solitude of that variety. The amount of research and insights into why we crave being around those things, even down to like a photograph that's mounted on the ceiling of your dentist's office, all have scientific evidence that helps our mind come at ease, get through decision making, 
really break the boundaries and be able to think clearly. Oh, cool. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Favorite book, I'd say Zag is one of my absolute favorites. I think it's by Marty Neumeyer. You can find it on Amazon. It's a tiny little book. It's all printed in black and white and it's got chunky graphics inside. But the point of it is when everybody zigs, you should zag. And that's been an incredibly helpful mantra as somebody that likes to disrupt trends and norms and really break up the boundaries. You know, you want to stick out like a sore thumb so that people remember you, so that they pay attention, so that they can find solace or excitement in what it is that you're offering to them. Cool. And how about a favorite tool? Favorite tool? Gigantic sticky pad lists. Oh, yes. Talk about photography. I think your image on your website is just perfect in terms of the emotions it evokes. Like, oh my gosh, this feels creative and open and free and interesting and intriguing. (laughs) (laughs) That's with you and your sticky notes. And you know, recently we moved into a new apartment and I was searching for like the next perfect whiteboard. And I was looking at, you know, the static cling versions of it. And I read reviews and people were just like, oh, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I was like, screw it. We're getting the paper version. I can tear it off, write all over it, take it away, throw it out, feel good about that. So I love those gigantic sticky pads. (laughs) Totally. And how about a favorite habit or personal practice of yours? Stepping away, going for walks. I have what I call a daily quota of fresh air where I notice that I start to get itchy or uncomfortable or just restless if I haven't been outside yet. I don't care how cold it is. I don't care if it's raining. I have to break up the day by getting some fresh air somehow, some way. And as I said earlier, a lot of the times by stepping away, I find all the clarity. I find great ideas and I can come back and sit down and be even more focused. Cool. And could you share perhaps a particularly resonant nugget or tidbit that when you share it, folks really seem to connect, you know, retweet or nod their heads emphatically? A Stacy Dyer quotable original. Limitations breed creativity. Oh, man. I remember I interviewed for a job where somebody asked me why that was my quote on the website and was very intrigued <laughs> outside of anybody that's ever attended one of my workshops or even has been a part of AstroWed. It's all about finding your constraints because pure creative freedom is really scary. (laughs) You can start from scratch, but sometimes scratch is really overwhelming as a blank white canvas. So finding those constraints, finding your limitations, it will absolutely fuel your creativity. Oh, you know, that's absolutely my experience when it comes to like stress. It's like, okay, don't have enough resources to get this thing done. Okay, what are we going to do? And so there's just that right. bit of pressure or necessity. And then you come up with a discovery and it's like, well, shucks, how come I don't just do this all the time? Busy <laughs> or not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I often tell people, I'm like, set a timer, make yourself panic a little, and then see what actually comes of it. <laughs> oh, that's cool. And again, what would you say is the best place to find you? StacyDyer.com. So that's S-T-A-C-E-Y-D-Y-E-R. And then AstroWed, you can find at A-S-T-R-O hyphen W-E-D dot com. All right. And do you have a favorite challenge or parting call to action you'd like to sound forth to those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Get out there and talk to people. Don't worry about failing. Listen to what they say. Fail fast. You're going to learn from it. Life is an experiment. Learn from it. Perfect. Well, Stacey, this has been a lot of fun. I wish you tons more success and traction with your ideas and creative inspirations along the way. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure to chat with you today. 
on that time machine tactic is pretty cool. I've been using it and thinking about it more and more and even having some cool insights along the way, like we should write down what's going on with our flowers because the handwriting of this person who's doing the flowers is all over the place and she might be confused. And sure enough, she was. So it's pretty cool when you actually proactively imagine what could have gone wrong and why it sparks different kinds of ideas. And that's my experience, both on the wedding side and in the life and business side. So if you want to check out those show notes and links to things mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep92, or take advantage of the limited window to get a discount on 2017 training. You can do that there. Shoot me a note, Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com. And I hope you'll punch the subscribe button to hear from our next guest, which is Robert D. Smith, the Robert D. He's got some great perspective on really making the most of your days and moments. And if you do shoot me an email, I may be a little slow to respond this time around as I am on honeymoon, but I will be back. So I'm not ignoring you. I will just be a bit delayed as I'm away from a computer and near sand. So that's what I've got. Hope to catch you next time. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 